0: and enjoy the show. Today's episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark is brought to you by Shudder.com, the premium streaming video service from AMC Networks. Shudder's got the latest, fastest-growing selection of horror, thriller, and supernatural content in the world. And you know what's even better? Every title featured there was handpicked by people that live and breathe horror just like you and me, At Shudder, you can stream ad-free on all your favorite devices and choose from a number of their exclusive titles, such as Rob Zombie's 31 or Brandon Christensen's Stillborn, or from one of their countless collections, including 30 of the best horror films you won't find on Netflix. For those days when terror of the audio variety isn't enough to satisfy your taste for terror, Shudder's got you covered. Try Shudder, 100% free for 30 days. Go to Shudder.com forward slash podcast, and use promo code TOLD, that's TOLD, T-O-L-D, to let them know that Otis Jairi sent you, and spend the next 30 days streaming some of the greatest horror entertainment in the world for free. I'll be back after tonight's first story to tell you a little more about my own experience with Shudder. Until then, stay tuned, the show is about to begin. (laughs) Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 10. I'm your host, Otis Gyrie. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about horrific hunger, phantasmal fiends in friendship, haunted hotels, and the painful side of pleasure. All of them from the cutting room floor of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights' newest crowd-funded horror anthology series, live now at kickstarter.com. Earlier this month, our friends at CTFDN set out to raise funds to produce a single, fully illustrated short horror anthology featuring more than 55 amazing authors. The project, which is being funded through August 1st, 2018, via crowdfunding platform Kickstarter, reached its initial goal in just 10 days and set its sights afterward on making the single book a series. With 12 days to go, the project was less than $1,000 away from raising enough funds to make a second full book. The campaign's not over yet, however. With your help, we can make this duet of Doom a trilogy, and perhaps even a hardcover treasury with more than 100 brand-new illustrated stories. And if the second stretch goal is reached, the team at CTFDN will begin allowing submissions from the public. That's right. You'll get your chance to have one of your own tales included. Each book in the series will feature 30 or more original stories from authors such as Candle Cove creator Chris Staub, author of Ted the Caver, Ted Hegeman, Matt Demersky, Michael Whitehouse, and many more and every tale will be illustrated in bone-chilling black-and-white charcoal style by Simply Scary podcast artist David Romero. If you're familiar with the art from scary stories told in the dark, Romero's twisted depictions will likely make you nostalgic or give you PTSD. David is also the talented gentleman that produced the art for this very show. Tonight's tales are extra special because, as amazing as they are, They were deemed too extreme for the Chilling Tales anthology and are being made available here tonight just for you to thank you all for backing the project. If you haven't already, you can back the project at Kickstarter through August 1st and get your copy of the first collection before Halloween. Links are available on ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com or on CTFDN's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram feeds. You're listening to the Standard Edition of tonight's program, which includes the first two stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. And Thank you for your support. It's time to get started, so lock your doors. Turn the lights down, Lowen. Settle in. The show is about to begin. Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us from author Brian Martinez. I give to you, Eater. A young woman named Susan had just started a new job that was giving her some trouble. Well, just one part of it, actually. Susan had told herself this one part of her job wouldn't be a big deal. Piece of cake, a walk in the park. After all, they were just people, and she generally liked people. But from the moment she saw, from the very first peek she got from the hallway, she knew the truth she'd been avoiding all along. Susan didn't like the dead bodies. Where in most jobs, a fear of dead bodies wouldn't be much of an issue. Susan had just gotten a job at the local funeral home. It was a desk job, mostly, meeting with families to discuss how they wanted their dearly departed to be handled. The correct spellings of their names, which flowers they liked, that sort of thing. The rest was up to the funeral director, Mr. Charleston. Susan liked Mr. Jolston. He was a soft-spoken man, who had hired her with no fuss and even less muss. He respected her opinion and left her to do her job without interference. A favor, Susan was more than happy to return. Mr. Jolston was slightly odd, of course, as she expected any funeral director to be. But it was a quiet sort of odd, charming in its harmless nature, He seemed to prefer solitude to conversation, usually choosing to eat his dinner alone. Susan, on the other hand, enjoyed a bit of conversation. So, when there wasn't much to do or she needed to step away from her desk to give her eyes a rest, she sometimes looked in on Mr. Jolston in his office. Only in his office, never the preparation room, as she did one cold Thursday evening. "'How's it going tonight?' Susan asked Mr. Jolston, who was hunched over a dog-eared medical journal he'd pulled down from his bookshelf. Fine, fine, I think I'll step out for dinner, Mr. Jolston replied. That was the extent of the conversation. He did, however, as he grabbed his coat from the hook, add one small bit of instruction. The preparation room is locked. I prefer you not go in there, but if you do, make sure to lock it again. "'He pointed a well-groomed finger toward the room. "'Watch well, doubt I'll need to,' Susan replied, "'not intending to go anywhere near the room with the operating table "'and the freezer and all those instruments. "'Mr. Jolston placed his hat on his head as he stepped past her. "'Well, I'm sure you won't, but it's important enough to bear mentioning.' "'He paused at the door, as if unsure whether or not to go into further detail. "'He added,' there's only one client at the moment, Mr. Sato. I'll begin with him when I return. She remembered the delivery a few hours earlier, as well as her conversation with the late Mr. Sato's wife of 36 years the day before. What Susan didn't understand was the reason for Mr. Jolston's mentioning it, as if it made locking the door any more important. Mr. Jolston seemed to notice her confusion, yet he did nothing to clear it up. Living well enough alone, he exited the funeral home, no doubt walking to the diner that served his favorite dish. Susan had always found their food to be a bit undercooked for her taste, though it didn't seem to bother Mr. Jolston, as he in fact preferred his food that way. Susan returned to her desk and got settled, looking to finish her paperwork before her shift was over. It wasn't long, however— before her mind began to wander back to the late Mr. Sato, currently lying in a freezer in the next room. A corpse. A dead body on a slab. She told herself she was being silly, working herself up for nothing, acting like a scared little girl. And yet, she couldn't stop thinking about it. She'd been left all alone with it, just her and a slowly decaying dead body. Just one peek at a body had ruined her day and there were so many days ahead. In that moment, Susan decided something. She decided she liked her job too much to let her fear get in the way. She decided to formally introduce herself to Mr. Sato. If she studied a body, if she acquainted herself with death, so to speak, she could take its power away. Exposure therapy, as the psychiatrist calls it. But she had to be quick before Mr. Jolston came back from his dinner. He was a nice man, but he could still get angry in the right circumstances. There was always a chance he'd come back early from dinner, perhaps having forgotten his wallet, and find her. No more procrastinating, Susan told herself. She went to where the keys were kept, found the key to the preparation room, and let herself in, closing the door behind her. The room was pristine, as she expected it to be. Its shelves perfectly lined and organized. The tile floor was spotless. The harsh smell of cleaning chemicals rising up stung at Susan's nose, though it was a far better smell than the alternative. Bottles of formaldehyde and other preservatives were at the ready on the long counter against the wall. Next to them, a glass embalming machine with rubber tubes— a quick peek into a few of the drawers revealed bottles of glue, wooden dowels of various sizes, strange spiked cups the size and shape of eye patches, as well as large variety of needles in flesh-toned thread. At the center of the room, above the operating table, a contraption had been mounted to the ceiling. It didn't take too long a look, at its four long straps dangling above the table for Susan to understand, she was looking at a body lift. She imagined a puppet show of dead bodies, their mouths sewn shut, and their heads propped up with wooden dowels. Ignoring the shouts inside her head telling her not to, Susan crossed to the freezer's large metal door and opened it. There it was, the top of the corpse's head in front of her. Her heart pounded in her chest. Cold air crept across her skin. Susan shut her eyes, placed her hands on the cold metal drawer, and slid it forward. A long, metallic squeak danced on her nerves. Then Susan opened her eyes. The middle-aged Japanese man in front of her was dead for certain. She could smell him now, the smell of death. The look on his face was more than sleep. It was sunken, relaxed. Nothing inside, Yet she kept expecting his eyes to open, to look up at her from the slab and ask her what she was doing. She stared at his eyelids as if the moment she looked away they would jolt open, but they didn't. The late Mr. Sato had been a handsome man once, a husband of thirty-six years to a loving wife, an accomplished businessman in the area, and a supporter of so many charities she'd lost count. Susan sighed as she realized how childish she'd been about the simple act of death. The man in front of her deserved her respect, not her fear. He was no monster. He was a good man who led a good life. The sound of a door opening perked up Susan's ear. It was the funeral home's back door, the one that led to the small parking lot. Susan's heart dropped as she realized Mr. Jolston had come back from dinner If he caught her there, borrowed key in hand with Mr. Seto's body taken out of the freezer, he would fire her for certain. Her attempt at saving her job would instead have cost it. As her mind raced, not knowing what to do, how to handle the situation, she began to notice the strangest noise coming from the direction of the funeral home's back door. It sounded as if Mr. Jolston was cursing and hitting himself. "'violent words and even more violent hits. "'Susan began to grow worried as the cursing and hitting grew louder "'until she made the most unsettling realization. two of them, in fact. "'One, it wasn't Mr. Jolston. "'He always came through the front door. "'And two, whoever it was, they were coming her way. "'Susan didn't have time to slide the drawer back and close the freezer. "'She only had time to hide.' The stranger was already turning the handle on the preparation room's door. Susan ran to the closest counter and opened a lower cabinet. There wasn't enough room for her, too many cutting and sawing instruments. The door was opening now, the violent stranger letting himself in. Susan's heart was nearly in her throat as she tried the next cabinet over under the sink, praying for escape. Other than a single pipe leading into the wall, the cabinet beneath the sink was empty— She jumped inside as quickly and as quietly as she could, just as the stranger stepped into the room. She didn't even have time to close the cabinet door all the way. The noise of its shutting would be heard. She held it open barely an inch to keep it from making a sound. As Susan huddled in the dark, damp cabinet, surrounded by the smell of mildew from the water pipe lodged in her back, she listened to the stranger creeping into the room. He was still cursing and spitting, though under his breath now. He sounded angry, disgusted, vile language spewing from his lips. Susan didn't want to look at him, but she had to. The man crossing the room had been terribly injured, his skin covered in weeping blisters and open wounds. His clothes were little more than torn rags. Susan instantly felt terrible, "'realizing she'd been hiding from someone who'd been badly hurt, "'who had wandered into the funeral home confused and in a time of need. "'She nearly burst out of the cabinet to help the poor man. "'But then, as the stranger came closer, Susan took a second look. "'His head was misshapen. "'The hair growing from it was thin and wispy, "'like the cobwebs found in an abandoned place.' His eyes were deranged, radiating so much anger and disgust. And his hands, dirty hands that ended not in fingernails but claws, sharp claws caked with dirt and filth. "'Don't want it,' the man spit, his skin waxing like the mummies Susan had seen in museums. "'Don't want it! Don't want it! Don't do it! Don't want it!' Susan was frozen in place. Holding the cabinet door open just a sliver just enough to stare wide-eyed at this gaunt, narrow arms, his naked belly spilling out over his rags. He sniffed the air, his head craning atop a long, thin neck that barely supported it, searching for something even as he cursed himself for doing so. The vile stranger caught the sight of Mr. Sato. Susan saw a look in his eyes that shook her, like a drug addict seeking a dealer like a ravenous animal spotting prey. The stranger's eyes didn't just light up, they actually glowed. With no other warning, the ragged stranger suddenly jolted across the room. He closed the distance between him and the late Mr. Sato in seconds, repeating, "'Don't do it! Don't want it! Don't do it!' until he fell on the cold corpse. Susan didn't know what to do. She didn't make a sound— didn't move a muscle on her crouched body. No matter how much she told herself to, she couldn't look away. As she watched, the ragged, misshapen man sank his filthy claws into Mr. Sato's stomach. The dead flesh tore open easily. Clotted blood and cold intestines spilled out. Susan stared horrified as the stranger continued to tear and rend the corpse all the while cursing and spitting, scolding himself not to do it, that he didn't want to do it, that he was disgusting, worthless, nothing. And then the stranger began to eat. Chunks of Mr. Sato were pushed into the stranger's hungry, infected mouth, floppy pieces of liver and kidney sliding between his lips. His sharp, bloody teeth chewed stringy muscle and tendon, They ground on cartilage as his sore, pocked tongue struggled to choke back Mr. Sato's black hair. Susan screamed inside, begging herself to look away, but she found it impossible to do so. It was more than just fear, more than sick fascination. The horrific sight had transfixed her, refusing to let her so much as shut her eyes and listen to the chewing and slurping and spitting. So many times Susan felt the bile rise up in her throat, but each time she managed to force it back down. Piece by piece, the stranger devoured the late Mr. Sato, only pausing to fill his pockets with bits and pieces until all that was left was a skeleton with a head. Then he started in on those two. Finally, after what felt like hours of snapping and crunching, The monstrous stranger had had his fill. Without another bite or a self-loathing word, he left the way he came. When he was gone, Susan allowed herself a moment to cry and gather herself in the dark. Then she slowly emerged from the cabinet. Susan's body was racked with pain from huddling awkwardly for such a long time. She wiped a tear from her eye and took a look at what was left of Mr. Sato. His body was gone, nothing there now but a freezer drawer that never should have been opened. All evidence of the former man had disappeared, even the blood had been licked up. After thirty-six years of faithful devotion, Mrs. Sado had been left without so much as a finger to mourn. Susan turned away, unable to look at the sight any longer. The stranger's face was now an inch from her own. His red, watery eyes burned into hers. His lips were thick with scars and the smell of him was awful. The worst thing Susan had ever smelled. Like rotten milk and black mold left in the sun. Susan whimpered, frozen again in place. Please. She managed to stutter, begging for her life. The sick stranger twisted his long neck, studying the words that spilled from her trembling mouth. Please don't. "'A thought seemed to form in the stranger's inflamed brain, and he twitched. "'The sudden movement frightened Susan. "'She cried out, shutting her eyes tight. "'This was it. "'He was going to use the same sharp teeth on her "'she'd seen him use to devour Mr. Sato one mouthful at a time. "'But the bite didn't come. "'She opened her eyes again, hoping he'd be gone like a bad dream. "'A nightmare fading in the morning sun.' Instead, she saw him pull something out of his pocket and hold it out to her. It was Mr. Sato's eyeball. The brown iris and black pupil stared up at her from the stranger's dirt and blood-caked hand. Susan looked back up at the inhuman stranger in front of her. Help me! He whispered his breath a wretched combination of old blood and putrid meat. It took Susan a moment to understand what he wanted. When she did, when the horrific realization filled her mind, she backed away, shaking her head as her back pressed up against the wall. No, no, I I can't, she said. He stalked forward and shoved his stinking hands in her face. Help me, he repeated closer now, eyes bulging in his poorly formed skull. Susan glanced down at the eyeball, tears streaming down her face. The eyeball was all that was left of Mr. Sato, the rest filling up the stranger's swollen belly. "'Please don't make me do this,' she begged. The stranger's wound-covered face suddenly shifted. Angry in a heartbeat, he snapped his teeth at her face. The sharp needles missed her nose by an inch. She screamed, then began to cry again. She prayed he would show some compassion for her tears." Instead, he placed Mr. Sato's eyeball in her hand. She was surprised to find it was still cold from the freezer. The stranger stared at her. His breathing was uneven each breath a gasp, like a man sleeping through a flu. As he clacked his claws together, his naked toes drumming the towel floor, Susan understood she had exactly two options. One, to eat the late Mr. Sato's eyeball and two, to be killed and eaten by the half-naked creature before. With only a moment's pause, Susan raised the cold eyeball to her mouth and popped it inside. The taste of the eyeball, the cold feel of it against her tongue, made Susan gag, but she didn't dare spit it out. The wispy-haired stranger urged her on. His breaths were short, excited. She wasn't sure what made him more happy. "'that she was eating the piece of Mr. Sato "'or that he didn't have to do it himself. "'She thought back to the way he'd cursed at himself, "'trying to stop himself from doing what he was about to do. "'The eyeball was only growing warmer inside her, "'the congealed blood mixing with her spit. "'Before it could get any worse, she bore down and swallowed. "'It went down like a rock, a cold, gelatinous rock.' She willed herself to swallow it all the way down, her eyes squeezed tight, her neck and throat quivering. When it was done, she opened her eyes and looked at the freakish stranger. He smiled at her, a great, big mouthful of needle teeth with bits of flesh caught between. The teeth parted to let the tongue through. The Adam's apple and his unusually long neck bobbed, He was forming words. "'Give it back!' he whispered, and Susan blinked. "'What?' His face shifted into a frown, an angry frown. "'Give it back!' he repeated, this time more desperate. He clutched at her, pushing her back into the wall. His eyes began to glow again, the hunger reignited. He was either going to reach down her throat or straight through her stomach to get what was his.' "'Oh, God, no. Please, no. Please, just—' A sound, a beautiful sound, interrupted them. It was the funeral home's front door opening. The stranger craned his neck until it nearly snapped, following the sound, recognizing it, understanding the danger there. Then he glanced back at her. Without a word, the stranger let her go and scampered away, Susan fell to the floor, hearing only the sound of his feet scurrying out the door and away. She paused a moment, thinking she might be all right. Then she threw up, eyeball and all. It was much warmer this time. When she was done, she realized Mr. Jolston was standing in the preparation room's doorway, watching her. I tried to warn you. Mr. Jolston sighed, crossing his arms. Those damn things! They just can't resist Japanese.
1: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
0: I hope you enjoyed Eater by author Brian Martinez. It appears that sometimes, even if you're dead, you just gotta eat. Speaking of appetites, up next we've got a cautionary tale of carnal consequences from Megan J. which was too nightmarish even for Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's horror anthology. And that's a compliment. But first, I'd like to tell you a bit more about Shudder.com, the only video streaming service for true fans of the fearsome. So what can I say about Shudder? It's the Netflix of horror. You can stream great thrillers, horror, and suspense. Just $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year. And it's got the largest, fastest-growing, human-curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment. You get new spine-tingling thrillers, shocking horrors, and edge-of-your-seat suspense added weekly. You'll have unlimited access to stream ad-free on all your favorite devices. Be it iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Xbox One. Fire TV from Amazon, Google Chromecast, Roku, even Android devices. Shudder has a unique collection of exclusive and original films and series, horror classics, and blockbuster hits. And we've got things like Cuso, Mayhem, Downrage, Cold Hell, Stillborn, Sequence Break 31, and upcoming Todd in the Book of Pure Evil seasons 1 and 2, and that'll hit Shudder on the 26th of July. Now, I don't get a lot of time to watch stuff, listen to stuff, doing everything I gotta do here on the podcast and on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and my own YouTube channel. But I did get a chance to look at Rob Zombie's 31 and yeah, I like it. It's good. Driving through the Southwest on Halloween night, Charlie and her canny crew, they're attacked and brought to a factory where evil aristocrat Malcolm McDowell announces they'll be hunted by a series of killer clowns including the unstoppable Doomhead. Yeah, that death Sounds kind of a bit like uh, the most dangerous game from the 30s to the Hunger Games. But uh, Rob Zombie, he's got got his own take. And the subgenre naturally receives its most unrelentingly gruesome interpretation. It's a Shudder classic. An exclusive. Uh, Don't forget, you can get 30 days of Shudder totally free by using promo code TOLD. Just visit Shudder.com. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R dot com forward slash podcast and enter the word told. And start enjoying hundreds of horror, thriller, and supernatural films and made-for-TV series today. Now, we've got another terrifying tale for you, so grab your safety blanket and snuggle up. Things are about to get spooky. Our second story this evening is by author Megan J. Meehan, entitled Beastie. Matt Brewer was a bad kid. A, there's something wrong with him, kind of kid. People were afraid of him, and that's just how he liked it. As a child, his behavior had been off-putting, but not by intention... "'Matt simply acted out the urges to kick and scream and bite and punch "'that he wasn't able to control nor contain. "'When he was five, he got banned from the playground "'for pushing other children down "'and causing a dozen scraped knees in two weeks. "'When he was seven, he had nearly drowned his young neighbor in the pool "'after an argument over a float. "'That had been his first and last invitation to a birthday party. "'He had not done these things knowing they'd upset, unsettle the adults. He had done them purely on impulse, instinct. Yet as he got older, he started to cultivate his image as a weirdo, a creep. He liked keeping people at bay. Making others uncomfortable was the ultimate power rush. Matt supposed that there was probably something wrong with him. Other kids, even the tough-talking jocks, didn't delight at shooting squirrels with BB guns and lacing bread with poison just to watch pigeons suffer through death throes. Those were hobbies that Matt savored alone. He didn't care for others. He had no friends, and that's how he liked it. People irritated him. Once, when he was ten, his mother had finally given in to peer pressure and attempted to force a friendship upon him with Fred the awkward, gangly grandson of her portly co-worker, Barbara. Both boys were close to the same age, and both were misfits, so the adults naturally assumed they were kindred spirits who would obviously become fast friends. They assumed wrong. Matt and Fred had been left alone one sunny afternoon. The play date started out in the overgrown backyard of Fred's ramshackle house, but quickly led to both boys sneaking off into the woods after Matt suggested that it would be fun to go digging for worms to put inside the refrigerator. He giggled, just imagining the horrified screams of Fred's granny, when she opened the fridge and discovered the withering, muddy mess of worms stocked upon the shelves. Fred had simply gone along with the plan. He was almost catatonically agreeable, but Matt still regarded him as an annoying third wheel. He couldn't walk briskly through the foliage and said he disliked nature. He also mentioned being unable to swim. And so, when they got to a rocky stream, Matt hadn't been able to resist pushing Fred into the water. He had landed with a hard splash, and Matt giggled wildly as he watched the other boy flail about, shrieking. When Fred finally managed to stand up, he was sobbing and stuttering and seemingly trying to cuss Matt out. You're a jerk! Fred managed to utter before he looked down and saw nearly a dozen leeches stuck on his legs. The sight sent him into a gale of hysterics. He stomped through the woods so frantically that he fell and shattered his ankle with an audible snap. He lay there, hoarse from screaming and crying, "'with his ankle bent unnaturally to one side "'and the leeches sucking away at his pale legs. "'Pathetically, he begged Matt to help him. "'I bet you're sorry you called me a jerk now,' "'Matt stated calmly as he walked away. "'Ignoring Fred's pleas for help, "'Matt spent the next two hours "'collecting the fattest, juiciest earthworms he could find. "'He then returned to Fred's house and put them in the fridge.' He laughed uproariously when Barbara woke from her nap and opened the fridge and screamed like all the demons in hell were after her. Matt had snickered until his sides hurt and then ran two blocks home before he was spotted. It was at least three hours before anyone inquired about Fred's whereabouts. Barbara called Matt's mother at 8 p.m., and Matt confessed that they had gotten into an argument and he left him in the woods earlier in the afternoon. He failed to mention anything about the leeches, or the broken ankle. The adults discovered those realities when they found Fred babbling and bloody at the edge of the woods. He had to be taken to the hospital. The police chief had come around to Matt's house, but Matt denied any involvement in the injury. It was okay when I left him, Matt insisted, and the police left. No one could prove otherwise, and besides, he was only ten. They couldn't send a miner up the river... Fred and Matt never had another playdate, and Barbara stopped working at the Shopping Grove right after that, so Matt's mother stopped mentioning her and her people grandson in conversation. In truth, Mildred Brewer never said much, period. She was a quiet woman who spent most of her life stocking shelves and tending to her garden. She didn't communicate well with her only child, but she always defended him. She also defended her husband. Local gossip said he'd run off with a carny. Eldred said he'd been the victim of a kidnapping. Either way, he was out of the picture. As he got older, Matt was left alone more as his single mother worked longer hours. Matt supposed that was because she preferred the store to being home alone with him. By 14, he'd been banned from the local pool, forbidden from entering the ice cream parlor, and removed from school. Meldred said he was being persecuted, which was arguably true. After all, he never did anything overtly violent. The lifeguards couldn't prove he unhooked Carrie Lindley's top in the crowded waiting pool. The ice cream man couldn't confirm he'd thrown the dead rats under the tables. The fidgety school principal couldn't even cite a specific reason to bar him, except to say that he didn't seem to get along with the other students... And freely offered him the online class option. Matt readily accepted it. He liked the solitude of the Internet. The Internet had, in fact, opened many doors for Matt. He discovered BDSM and rape fantasy websites. They changed his life. The idea of having such power, such control, over a helpless female was more enticing and exciting than anything he had ever imagined. Sometimes, on his rare excursions into town, he'd spot some limber little peer and stare fixedly at her. Carrie Lindley was his primary target of untoward affection, and it was she who had fanned the flames of his addicted desire. Ugh! I'm such a beast! She sneered at him whilst pushing past him at the Memorial Day parade. Yes, a beast. Matt liked the sound of that. He even started creating misshapen figures, beasties, out of clay. One day he decided he would become a serial killer and leave a grotesque figurine with the body of each victim. That goal gave him something to look forward to. Matt also looked forward to seeing Carrie. He knew just how to make her notice him. She liked animals and volunteered at a local wildlife rescue center. If he caught a bird and then broke its wing, he could call the rescue when she was on duty and say that he had found it and was trying to help it. When she came to get it, he would lure her into his house. He would give her cake and a drink laced with his mother's sleeping pills. Terry would doze off, and he would be able to cop a feel. He wouldn't have sex with her. He knew all about DNA evidence. But she wouldn't be able to prove anything if he merely fondled her. Besides, he was only fourteen. It's not like they were going to try him as an adult. And so, one warm June day, Matt descended into the woods with his slingshot and a few rocks. He would catch a bird and injure it, but not kill it. For this hunt, he needed live bait. Matt expected to secure a feathered victim within ten minutes, but the forest was oddly silent. He walked in deeper and deeper, mindful of how easy it would be to lose his sense of direction. Suddenly, he heard an inhuman roar followed by the rhythmic sound of thuds and breaking branches. For the first time in his life, Matt felt fear as something heavy slammed into the back of his head. He fell to the ground and blacked out. The next thing he knew, sharp claws were pawing at him, tearing his clothes to shreds, "'and slicing into his skin. "'Matt screamed in pain and looked up to see a huge, hairy, "'red-eyed and horribly menacing creature staring down at him. "'Matt whimpered and tried to back away, "'but his aching head and throbbing body refused to budge. "'Then the creature roughly grabbed him by the neck and swung him upwards, "'seemingly snickering at his dismay.' Matt stared into the creature's bright, unblinking eyes and registered both intelligence and an absolute lack of emotion. He hoped it would simply bite his head off and end his agony and humiliation, quickly, but instead it threw him over its shoulder and carried him back to its cave. The creature didn't devour Matt. Instead, it tied him up with leafy vines and left him lying naked on a filthy bed of leaves. Occasionally it would beat him with a sharpened stick until he cried out. After what seemed like forever, his cries attracted the attention of another beast, who entered into the cave to gawk and grunt at him. And when its back was turned, Matt's tormentor bit into its neck, ripping up the jugular and splashing Matt with hot, gooey blood. Matt's kidnapper devoured its cannibalized victim And made a nest out of its bones in the dark recesses of the cave. Occasionally, it threw Matt raw scraps of meat, which he desperately devoured. And so it went on, time and time again, inhuman victim after inhuman victim, all dispatched after being lured by Matt's presence. Days turned into months, and months turned into years. Matt's fate was sealed. He was the beastie's bait. All of the stories featured in today's episode were too horrific, even for Chilling Tales for Dark Knights' crowdfunded horror anthology series. To see what you've been missing, and to pledge your support to make the book a reality, visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Kickstarter banner on the main page, or follow them on social media for more information about how you can help bring their nightmare to life and get your copy of the first book by Halloween. Thanks again to today's sponsor, Shudder.com, for their support of this show. Don't forget, as a listener, you can get 30 days of Shudder totally free by using promo code TOLD. That's T-O-L-D. Once more, just visit Shudder.com. That's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com forward slash podcast and enter the word TOLD to let them know that Otis Gyre sent you. What do you got to lose except for maybe some sleep? Who needs sleep, anyway? (laughs) Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like perform? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, Subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode, and leave a five-star review in a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button You'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and add free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's alright. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>